0: Open your Bible, if you would, to Daniel chapter 7. If you are new with us or just joining us, we are in the middle of a series in the book of Daniel entitled The Great King. And this morning, Daniel takes a turn. It is almost an entirely new book between Daniel chapter 6 and Daniel chapter 7. It is unlike anything. We've dealt with before. Anything we've dealt with before in the book of Daniel and almost unlike anything we've dealt with in 14 years as a church. This is a new kind of writing that we are looking at this morning. It's fascinating. It's interesting. It can be confusing. But God has good for us through his word. So if you don't mind, uh, find your belts in your pews or... Chairs, fasten your seatbelts. Keep your hands and arms inside the pews. And please stay seated until I am done with the reading this morning. I'm going to read Daniel 7 up through verse 12. Follow along. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different. From all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancients of days. Took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. God's word. What did we just read? I can tell you one thing. You have not read that in a newspaper lately. You know? As the war in Ukraine grinds into its second year, Russian forces bombed Kiev using their potent flying leopard with four heads. This kind of writing doesn't come to us like a a weather report. Today will be partly cloudy with highs in the 40s and a 50% 50% chance of the moon turning to blood and the stars falling from the sky. It had a lot of numbers in there, but it's not a math story problem. If a beast with ten horns loses three horns and then one is added back, how many years until Christ returns? It had animals... But it's not the science of biology, at least not here on earth. We had a a lion with wings, a lopsided bear, a four headed flying leopard, and an unclassified beast. And just to to tease up uh, Daniel chapter 8, we will have a battle between a two horned ram and a flying goat. What are we reading? What are we reading? That, my friends, is the major question. The first question that confronts any thinking reader of Daniel chapter 7 is what is this that I am reading? Before we can get to the deeper question, what is God saying? What is the meaning? How can I apply this? We've got to first understand what is it that we are reading. And today's a great day for us to begin to think about that because we're going to find that what begins here in Daniel 7 continues through the rest of the book. This is just a a preview of things to come. The rest of the book of Daniel is going to present itself just like this. And then, after this, as a church, we're going to study the book of Revelation. And I don't know if you've read that, but it's rather similar to what we were just reading here. And so it is good for us to consider the kind of writing that we are looking at. So let's just start with this idea. There are different kinds of writing. There are different kinds of, of writing. There different types, your literature teacher would call them genres. All right, genres, just a different kind or a different type of writing. So if you pick up a newspaper, you pick up, you don't even realize you're doing this, you pick up assumptions also. You expect a newspaper to do certain things. It's going to report some facts, it's going to give some details, it's going to lay out certain timelines. Right? These, are, these are the norms of newspapers, the, the, the rules of newspapers. If you picked up a love poem, you would expect something very different. It's not that the newspaper is more true, or that the love poem is more true, it's that they are d- using different ways of communication to communicate truth. So if a love poem said, I'm going to love you for a thousand years, it doesn't mean I'm going to love you for a thousand years. Right? But it's true. It means I am devoted for you, towards you, as much as I possibly can be. Right? We all get that. We all kind of understand that's how love poetry works. If a newspaper were to say, you know, this lady is going to love her husband for a thousand years, we would think, what? That's crazy for a newspaper to say. But it makes sense in a love poem. Right? So there are different kinds of writing. And if you try to interpret a love poem, I'll love you for a thousand years, in the, with the rules of a newspaper, you're going to get some really weird results. You're going to get some really strange outcomes, and you're going to miss the whole point of what's trying to be said. So as we consider the kind of writing in front of us, the end of Daniel, second half of Daniel, and all of Revelation, we have to treat it on its own terms. We cannot apply things that make sense towards other writing, towards this kind of writing. And I'll tell you, that this makes people sometimes uncomfortable. I've heard things like, why can't we just treat this like any other part of the Bible? Why do we read Genesis one way and Daniel and Revelation differently? And I just want to say, I understand that concern. I think that concern comes out of a good desire to protect God's Word. All of God's Word is God's Word, and we stand under it. And we ought not play fast and loose with our interpretations of God's Word. It's all given to us for our good and instruction in righteousness. So We want to understand God's Word in the way that He intends for us to understand it. I also relate with all of this, this desire to treat all of God's Word the same, Because it is all of God's Word. All of it from front to back is the same. But here's the thing, and this is the main thing. It's not all the same kind of writing. It's easy for us. If you pick up a newspaper, I'm not going to trick you. You pick up a newspaper, you're going to read it like a newspaper. But the problem I think we have is we pick up the Bible and we just think, Bible, What, what kind of literature is this? It's Bible. This is 66 books written by 40 different authors in multiple different styles. And if we miss the style or the type of writing right here, we are not going to understand what God is trying to say to us. Now the good news when you open up Daniel 7 is that it's obviously different from other things. So we're not going to, like, wow, yeah, that was, that was not what we had just been getting in the previous few Chapter. So what kind of writing is this? It's called apocalypse, or apocalyptic literature. So we're going to be studying now apocalyptic literature for the second half of Daniel and all through the book of Revelation. Now this may be a new concept to, to you, and so some of what we're going to do here is just well, how to read your Bible. right? Because we, we have to read this as apocalyptic literature. But to understand the, the genre, the kind of literature that it is on its own terms. And so I'm going to take some time with that this morning. But if you want to study that some more, I do have a, a, a recommended resource for you. It's this book right here. We have it back at the Resource Center. It's called The Triumph of the Lamb. It's a commentary on the book of Revelation. So obviously we're still in the book of Daniel. so I would encourage you, study most the book of Daniel right now. But chapter one of this book is entirely about the, the way that apocalyptic literature works. I find it very instructive, very easy to read, and it could be helpful for you as you try to wrap your mind around that kind of literature, both for Revelation and for the end of the book of, of Daniel. So, what do we encounter in apocalyptic literature? Well, its main feature is that it's full of imagery. It's it's like a cinema in our minds. It's painting pictures, using words, but painting pictures, giving us vision and, and kind of drawing things in color. Read Daniel 7 and you will not find Paul the teacher giving some instructions in a letter. You will not find Moses the historian talking to us about what happened in the Exodus. You won't find Daniel, the poet, giving up praise to God. Instead, we're going to be confronted by deformed and grotesque beasts. Four beasts with claws and horns and apparently much evil. So apocalyptic literature uses images. Now what does it use images for? What's it trying to do with these images? Well, here's what it's not doing. Apocalyptic literature does not use images to tell us what things will look like. Right? It's not trying to draw a picture of the future like a photograph that we could look at and say, Oh, there it is. I see. Here. Here comes a beast out of the sea. All right. Well, here's a beast coming out of the sea. I, now I've seen it. That, that's not what apocalyptic literature is trying to do. It does not tell us what things look like. It tells us what things are like. And what I mean is, it tells us what things are like in their essence, at their core, in their spirit. From, not, not so much, what would this kingdom look like from man's perspective? What does it look like from God's perspective? What's the reality behind what we see going on on earth? We can see what's going on on earth. Apocalyptic literature pulls back the curtain and says, this is what's going on behind the scenes. This is the reality that you can't see with your eyes. If you remove the physical veneer off the kingdoms of man, this is what you see. So, we could ask, what are the kingdoms of man like, as we just read about them in the first half of Daniel. What is Babylon like in all of her golden riches, and Persia in her power, and Greece with her rapid conquests of the world, and, and Rome in all of her glory? magnificence, kingdoms of men on the outside. What are they like? Twisted and deformed beasts, waking nightmares. We look at the first three of the beasts and they're all this kind of abortive crosses between different animals, kind of like a Frankenstein mix of sewing different parts of animals together. These are not the good creatures that God made according to their kind in the book of Genesis. These, these are twisted and grotesque and evil combinations of different kinds of animals all at once. And they each, in turn, are given power. And they each, in turn, use that power to harm, to devour, to destroy, to subjugate, to subject, to enslave. That's what they use their power for. And then the fourth beast comes along, and it is even worse. It is is not like the others. Daniel can't even say what it really looks like. There's no longer even an an earthly animal comparison to this one. It's simply a beast, the beast, with many horns and claws of bronze and teeth of steel. And it says it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. Brutal, destructive. And then there is one horn that grows up off of that beast which speaks, it says, great things. And as we look through the chapter of this, those great things are not good and great. They are great and wicked. They are are great in their wickedness. They are blasphemous words against God and against His reign and rule. The kingdoms of men, through the eyes of, of Daniel, are not of God. They are twisted and evil. Enemies of God and enemies of good and enemies of God's people. The kingdoms of men are not under God, are not of God, but they are under God. They're under Him. He is sovereign over them. It's clear that they are evil and wicked. And yet it's also clear from this passage that God is on His throne. And that He rules and that He reigns. And He doesn't just rule and reign towards the end when we actually see Him on the throne. And that's an exciting section. But He rules and reigns throughout the passage. God is perhaps at times a bit behind the scenes. But you can see Him if you look Throughout. Back in verse 4, with the first beast, it says that it has its wings plucked off. Then it was lifted up from the ground, and it was made to stand, and then it was given the mind of a man. Much is happening to this beast. And behind the scenes, it is God in control, even over this beast. Verse 5 gets us to the second beast. It was raised up on one side. God did the raising. It was told, Arise and devour much flesh. God did the telling. And then in verse 6, we're given the third beast, and it was given dominion over the earth. And who is there to give dominion but God Himself, granting for a time dominion to this beast. It is a mysterious plan but it is the mysterious plan of god to allow the evil beasts to have their day to allow the wicked kingdoms and systems and power structures of man to rise and fall in their rebellion to him each of these is in rebellion to god each of these is defiance against god and using their power to harm others. It's not hard to move from here mentally to just pictures of brutality, pictures of slavery, economic systems built on the backs of the poor, people dragged, like we learned last week, with hooks in their noses off to Persia to make their lives better. The master's lives better. And yet, all of these wicked empires, they are all serving under the authority of God. And for all their rebellion, they are only serving to fulfill his ultimate purpose and his ultimate end. See, Daniel 7 is a vision for human history. Starts in Babylon and keeps right on going from there. It is a vision for human history history, from the kingdom of Babylon to today, and a picture of God's sovereignty in the midst of all that happens. The beasts come and go. The sovereign God is over all. So, here's what we need to understand about apocalyptic literature. God gives it to us because we need it. Gives it to us because we need it. And He gives us what we need. Now, you're going to find that a little annoying at times. But first of all, let's just acknowledge God knows better what we need than we do, right? But second of all, we're going to have to acknowledge that in the midst of some uncertainty as we read, in the midst of questions as we read. Boy, could you give us some more details, Lord? Like, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's go back to that first beast. Tell me more about this, like some locations, some names some dates, that would be really helpful. God doesn't do that. He's not giving those kinds of details. And when God withholds details, we need to chasten our heart from continuing to ask for more details. And Say, okay, wait, what has God said? Let me make sure to hear what God did say. And what God is saying here is for our preparation." He is preparing us for the future. I just want to take one moment kind of on the side and say, you know, if God wanted to, he could have written this in newspaper style. Totally, 100%. He could have done this, right? Why not? He could have said, in the year 34 BC, this will happen. In the year 26 BC, this will happen. Watch out. And then this will happen, and then this guy will take over, and he'll do this, and he'll do this. And then Jesus will come in this year, and then in AD 70, Jerusalem will fall. It would have been very easy for him to give a newspaper account, and he doesn't. He writes in images, and he writes in pictures, and he leaves a lot of the details unsaid. And that's for our good. So, church, beware the end-time preacher who gives a sermon on this in newspaper style, as though he can fill in all the details that God himself has left out. Beware the end-time teacher who can chart everything perfectly with dates and times and predictions. Because God himself has given us these things in apocalyptic, pictorial, visionary form. So, why does he give it to us? Why does he give us this kind of literature? It is clearly not just so that we can have a detailed account of the future. It is rather to prepare us appropriately for the future. He knows what he needs to preserve unto himself, and he knows what he can give to us. And what we need to hear in order to be prepared. In order to be prepared for what is coming. And He's given us enough to be prepared for what is coming. That's what apocalyptic literature is for. It is to prepare God's people for what's coming. So, friend, God means to ready you. God means to ready you with His Word. For what He knows is coming. He wants to prepare you, to equip you. He gives us this to give us hope. He gives us this to give us a firm foundation as we walk through difficult times. He gives us this to give us a perspective, an eternal perspective, the divine perspective on what is happening here on earth. And here's the first big piece of divine perspective. It's this, God's in charge even when it doesn't look like it. God's in charge when all you can see is the beast. When all you can see is the the wicked kingdoms of man and power being abused and people made to suffer and things going poorly. You see that? Don't forget this. God is on His throne. God is in charge throughout this time, throughout this history, accomplishing His good purposes even through evil men. So Apocalypse, thankfully, helpfully, pulls back the curtain and says, dear church, it's not going to look good. Things aren't going to go great. Trust in your God in the midst of all of it. Trust in your God, regardless of what comes to pass. All right, so we've We've given a little bit of time to those four beasts. We'll get more with them next week as we do the second half of Daniel. But let's, let's take some time now in verses 9 and 10 as Daniel's vision is filled with something else. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment. The books were open. The Ancient of Days takes his seat on the throne. It says he's clothed in white. Does this mean that God prefers white clothing? No. Because remember, apocalyptic literature gives us visions not of what things look like, but of what they are like. What does this say about God? He is holy. He is spotless. He is pure. There is nothing wrong. There is no deformity. There is no error. He is fully complete. God is holy. And then the the hair on his head is like pure wool. Now, again, it's not that if you were to see God, you would see a frail old man with graying hair. Rather, this speaks to the ancient of days whose, whose time is from before creation, though he is undiminished in his strength and and the, the the hair that speaks of old days also speaks of wisdom right as we see somebody with gray hair and we should think do think wisdom associated with that well here is wisdom personified the accumulation of all wisdom is found in the ancient of days and then it says that his throne was fiery flames and its wheels were A burning fire. It's this flaming throne. A burning throne. Blazing in holiness. Consuming everything that's wrong and wicked and sinful. Turning its enemies to ash. His throne is a kind of representation of His power. It's the place where God sits. This is His. Kingdom. This is his rule. This is his reign. And it is irresistible, annihilating power. And yet he sits upon it with ease. It harms him not. His throne is no threat to him. But it is a most serious threat to his enemies. And it has wheels. Its wheels were burning fire. Now, again, you should not expect... That when you see the throne of God, that He's in a car with wheels. Okay? This does not describe what the throne looks like, but what it is like. His throne, His dominion, His rule is not confined to one place. God is on the move, He can travel. It it speaks to the reality that His kingdom, His rule, His reign can go anywhere, rule anywhere, judge anywhere, comfort anywhere. And I think it even goes further than that, that the throne and the rule and the reign of God goes everywhere. He rules everywhere. He judges everywhere, and He can comfort His people everywhere. There's nowhere you can go from His presence. Glory to God. And there's nowhere the beasts can go either from His presence. Such power they hold on earth. And then you see this. Here is power. Universal power. Supreme without needing to try. Power. And then we get to verse 10. A stream of fire comes out from the throne. This is Divine judgment heading out from God. A a pillar of fire behind which His people find safety and before which His enemies find their end. This pillar of fire, stream of fire coming out. A thousand thousand serve Him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. Now, the number thousand back then was the, the highest number they had. They didn't have a word for million or something like that yet. Though a thousand thousands gets you there, that's a million. Ten thousand times ten thousand, but again, let's resist. This isn't a math problem, it's a picture. It's a picture of an angelic ocean before the throne. Innumerable angels, and maybe, maybe humans, other created beings, that are standing before God, surrounding the throne in service, ready, willing, and able to accomplish His will. What the throne says, they're going to go make happen. This is the ultimate army as they stand before their God. So let it be very clear from this picture. The one on the throne will have His will accomplished. None will stand. Between him and accomplishing his good purpose. The court, it says, sat in judgment and the books were opened. Judgment day has arrived. Judge takes his seat, opens the books before him, silence falls. Except silence doesn't fall. In the midst of this holy scene and unstoppable power, another one still speaks. It is that blasphemous horn of verse 11. Daniel says, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. In the presence of God, Blasphemy." Arrogance, defiling words, mocking God's people, hating God's rule. And then, silence. The horn stops its mocking, and the beast falls to the ground. As I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. We will see this again as we get into the book of Revelation, the day will come when every enemy will be defeated of our God. Everyone Satanically empowered kingdoms will all fall. Now, we broke Daniel 7 in half because, frankly, the first half felt like enough of a mouthful for us to kind of get through together. And And yet, what that's going to do, it's going to leave a few things unanswered that the second half of the chapter is going to answer. And I look forward to getting to that with you next week. But I I have to warn you, even when we get to the second half, um, it's not going to answer all your questions. And I don't get like the secret pastor book Bible (laughs) to give you a little more. All right? So we have to prepare ourselves for the reality that we're going to have some unanswered questions, some some intellectual questions. And it's not wrong to pursue answers to our questions. Let's study God's Word. That's why we're here. Let's study God's Word together over the coming months and, and seek to understand as much as we can possibly understand. But, for now, knowing that there will be questions unanswered, that God has chosen not to answer. Don't let intellectual questions distract you from obedience. We can't wait till we get all of this to start applying what we know. This is for our preparation. This is God seeking to prepare us. So don't don't be distracted from listening to His voice. Or we could say it another way. Let's not be distracted by what we don't know from what we do know. And there are some things here which are very clear. God would prepare us, So, church this morning, prepare yourself. Prepare yourself. There are beasts. The kingdoms of men will come and go and they will be unjust. Systems, power structures, economic forces that leave people behind that destroy people, these come and go. They're cruel, they're evil, they're oppressive, they're violent. And we should have a certain expectation for these kinds of beasts until the return of Christ. But we have also seen behind the curtain, and there is one on the throne right now. and He's on the throne throughout all of this. Take a look again at the one who's on the throne today. Do you see his white clothing? Is he not righteous? Is he not holy? Is he not pure? Are all his plans not for good? His plans are good. He's going after something good. Don't let the beasts lie to you. The plans of God are good. He is the Holy One. And only one such as He could take evil such as they and use it for good. But that's exactly what he's doing. And you see his white hair? He's wise. Friend, he's wiser than us. You don't know what he's doing? You're not supposed to. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know the why for this and the why for that. But here, here's where we can rest. He is wise. The one on the throne is both good and wise. And he is wise to a level that, that has no competition and cannot be improved. In other words, the plan he comes up with is not improvable. There's no better plan possible because the one who is wisdom itself designed this plan. It is a good and it is a wise plan that God has for all of history and for all of our lives. His plan is good. You won't see it sometimes, friend. His plan is good for you. His plan is wise when we can't perceive His wisdom. Yet He is wise. Do you see the thousands of thousands standing around Him and the 10,000 times 10,000? The fire that streams from His throne. Will He not accomplish His will? What beast can stand before Him? What sin of yours can stop Him? What sin of somebody else can stop Him? What system that treats you unjustly or problem that comes up in your life, what is there that stops the will of this one on the throne? Nothing. Nothing. And so what do we have? We have a perfectly good God after what is good and righteous and just for His people who has divined the very best wise strategy to make that happen and He has all might to make it so. That is great news. That's great news. He will not be thwarted. And do you see his throne placed upon those wheels? You will face many things, but you will face none of them alone. Not a one. You may face sin or sickness, trials or tyrants, sorrows or suffering, but you will never face them alone. Never, never alone because the God on the throne is not far from His people. He's not neglecting His his people. He is right there with His people. Where you are, He is. Dear friend, where you are, He is. And so, let us be prepared for the realities of this world, but we can see beyond it to the one on the throne who is working all things together for our good, for His glory. He is sovereign over all of history and all of our lives. Let's close in prayer. Worship team, come on up. Father, I pray that You would give Your Spirit right now, that Your Spirit that has already been and is at work in this room right now, would You give us eyes to see. I pray for those particularly who are, who are suffering acutely right now. Oh, that You would be near to them. That they would be aware of Your power and Your goodness and Your wisdom and Your might and Your presence. You. You. Sovereign one can do these things. Help us trust you as we walk through this world and all the trials that are faced. Be with us, your people, as you have promised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Ancient of Days together.